Good morning. You all are doing a little better than the kids, I hope, this morning. Okay, well, um, thanks to Pastor Eric for preaching uh, last week. It's always uh, a privilege uh, to sit under the teaching uh, of our pastoral staff, even for myself. And so I want to thank Eric for preaching last week. I'm looking forward to continuing on here uh, in um, our sermon series, uh, Hebrews uh, sermon series steady on finding strength in the book of Hebrews, our text today, which has been read for us, 3, 1 through 6. But as I begin, I want to, uh, I want to hearken back to a passage out of Genesis chapter 11 as kind of a context, or a, not necessarily a context setting, but a, like a, a framing uh, passage for us this morning. In Genesis chapter 11, you might remember this, uh, if you've been around church for a while, this might be a new story for you, but it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And coming out of the, the great flood in Noah's day, uh, the people began to remultiply upon the earth. And pretty soon uh, after that, they all came together and determined to build a great tower up into the heavens and to God. And they said, uh, let us do this, lest uh, we are dispersed out through the earth and the implication being we're dispersed out throughout the earth and we're forgotten. We just kind of, kind of go away like the, like the grains of wheat just kind of sifted in the wind. Let's come together. Let's build this great tower and we will climb and ascend up to God and up into heaven. And of course, God, you know the story. God comes and he confuses the language and the tower is not complete and they are dispersed out amongst the heavens. But there's something, I think, illustrative in that very opening passage of the Bible that, that there in Genesis 11, as the people of God, or as the, as the people of the earth are, are, are moving throughout the earth, they, they have this sense of needing to connect themselves to something greater than themselves. They recognize that kind of left to themselves, they're going to be just dispersed throughout the world, that they're, that they're kind of vulnerable and and like leaves in the wind. And so they want to come together to try to create something transcendent, something great that will get them in touch with a higher reality than themselves. And we are all, each of us, I think, looking for something to lift us up above kind of the everyday lives in which we live. We recognize that our lives should count for something more than just getting up, going to school, going to work, having a family, making some money, retiring, and then dying. That there should be more to life than this. And most of us, if we're honest, recognize that whatever this greater thing is that our lives should be about, it's something outside of us. It's greater than us. We know ourselves well enough to know that if the meaning of life is me, then we're all in a big problem. Right? There's got to be something more to life than just us. And our innate desire to connect with a higher reality, a deeper purpose for life, isn't wrong. In fact, the whole of the Christian religion is meant to assist us in this desire to connect with some transcendent and higher meaning. So this desire to find something greater than ourselves, to, to give our lives meaning and purpose, to, to live into some transcendent reality, this is very normal and right. The only pertinent question then is what higher reality are we trying to connect to and how are we trying to connect with it? 
Most of the sermons that I preach, I have in mind uh, the, 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 the Christian who wants to grow in their relationship uh, with the Lord. That's my primary audience. But I'm always, as I'm preaching to you all, I'm, I'm also thinking of those that are here that have not yet become Christians, that are contemplating whether or not they're going to follow Christ and give their life to Christ. Maybe fence sitters, uh, as you were. And today I'm going to reverse my primary audience around. Today the primary audience I have in mind is the fence sitter. Those that here, that are here, that maybe come every week with a family member or a friend. Um, but I'm not going to invite you to listen in as I talk to Christians. I'm going to talk to you directly. I'm going to invite our Christian friends to listen in as I'm talking to you. Of course, I hope that this will have application and be an encouragement to all of uh, the brothers and sisters in Christ here as well. But but I've been praying, and I, have a, I think the Lord has a particular application for those that are, that are trying to sort out, is the Christian faith for me? Is I, I perhaps been, I've, I've been disillusioned with faith growing up, or, or maybe you're, a, you're an older uh, child that attends with your family, and you, you know your family, your parents are committed to the faith, but you're not sure if you're going to be committed to the faith. Or perhaps you come with a spouse every week, or a friend, or a neighbor, and you're trying to sort out whether or not the Christian faith is for you. This is God's word for you this morning. Our text this morning, I think it's, it's dense. It's not necessarily the easiest to understand. The main point of it, I think, is clear enough, but the logic that the author is going to use to get to his main point can be a bit tricky to follow. So I'm going to do what I do with every sermon. I'm going to do my best to explain what this text meant to its original readers, how it would have been understood back in the first century uh, after Jesus had come and the church was just being formed. I'm going to do my best to explain the significance of that, and then I'm going to do my best to draw out the significance of that for us today, specifically with respect to this question of laying hold of life's higher meaning or discovering some transcendent purpose that we can give ourselves to. So Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, hopefully you're still there. Uh, if you're not, you can turn back uh, to there, find it on your phones, but uh, page 102 or 1002 in your, in your pew Bible. Hebrews, as we've noted uh, throughout this series, is written to Christians who are Jewish Christians who are tempted to return back to Judaism because of persecution that they were facing. And so the author has written the book of Hebrews to persuade them to stick it out with Jesus. And he's been insisting, and he will go on to insist throughout the remainder of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better than what they've left behind. And so he began by focusing on Jesus' superiority to the angels. But that's mainly chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2. And the reason for that is because angels had a high and exalted place within the Jewish faith and religion. And so to show that Jesus is better than kind of the best that the Jewish faith had to offer, better than angels, this was to motivate his readers to stick it out with Jesus. Well, he's going to do the exact same sort of move, the same sort of logic, but rather than focusing on angels, he's going to tackle another revered figure in the Jewish religious tradition, the prophet Moses. So we've just talked about Jesus' superiority to angels, and now we're going to talk about Jesus' superiority to Moses. So the author invites us in 3.1 to uh, consider Jesus. And he refers to Jesus as the apostle 
and the high priest of our confession. The term apostle is one that we've heard probably before, but technically uh, what it means is sent one, one who's been sent uh, with the word or on a commission. So an apostle is one who's been sent. God sends Jesus. Jesus sent the apostles out into the world, but God has sent Jesus. So Jesus really is the first apostle, as it were. So Jesus is introduced as an apostle. He's introduced uh, uh, as, the high, as the high priest. And we're going to get into more uh, looking at Jesus and his priestly functions in the weeks to come as we explore the book of Hebrews. But here Jesus is introduced as this high priest, the high priest in the Jewish religious system was the one that, uh, the whole priestly class, but the high priest stood at the head of this priestly class that was the go-between between God and humanity, between God and his people. So the logic of this passage runs very much along the same lines that we've seen in the first two chapters. Jesus is better, just as Jesus is better than angels, Jesus is better than Moses. But why is Jesus, or why is it that Jesus is better than Moses such a big deal? If you didn't grow up in church or you're not familiar with the Jewish faith or the Christian faith, you may not know much about Moses or uh, why Jesus being better than Moses uh, counts for something. So we need to look a little bit at who Moses was. Moses was not only a Jewish prophet, he was that, but in the Jewish tradition, he's the greatest mediator between God and his people. Abraham was another great figure in the Jewish tradition. Abraham was the, the progenitor or the physical uh, f- forefather of the Jewish people. The Jewish people are descended from Abraham. So Abraham is the father of the Jewish race. But Moses really is the founder of the Jewish religion. So Abraham gives birth, as it were, to the Jewish people. But Moses gives birth to the Jew- Jewish religion. Moses is the great uh, receiver of the law, the Ten Commandments. He goes up to Mount Sinai, receives the law from God, brings it down to the Jewish people, and establishes the customs that Jews even to this day still live into. So, so Moses is the great mediator between God and his people. And here in verse 2, the author notes the greatness of Moses. The author isn't trying to discount the greatness of Moses. Look what he says. He says, Moses was faithful to him who, or Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. house. The reference here looks back to uh, Numbers chapter 12. And in Numbers chapter 12, this expression, Moses was faithful in God's house, is used. And in that situation or that story, Moses is the great uh, prophet and priest and mediator between God. He had a brother and a sister. Moses had a brother Aaron and he had a sister Miriam. Miriam was a great prophetess and and Aaron was uh, the, the, the head of the priestly class. And Moses uh, was so exalted by God that Miriam and Aaron became jealous. And they said, why do you get all the glory? Why do you, only you get to go talk to God? Why do all the people look to you? Why, why are you the only mediator? We're of your family as well. And so God sees the three siblings squabbling. And he says, all of you come and stand in front of the house, the tent of meetings. <laughs> so they all go stand out in front of the tent of meetings. And, and God says to, to, Aaron, to Miriam and to Aaron, he says, when I speak to the prophets, he says, I speak in dreams, and I speak in visions, in darkness and night. But when I speak to Moses, I speak face to face, mouth to mouth. Moses is faithful in all my house. So God himself 
positions Moses as the greatest of all of his prophets. Moses is not uh, just a great man by the Israelites' account, but he is a great man by God's own account. This idea of being faithful in God's house, the house is another way in the ancient world of referring to the people who belong to a royal person. In other words, like the royal household. So you might think we go on into the, the days of the kings, and David would refer to, uh, people would refer to David's house, King David's house. It's not just a reference to the building that David lived in, but to his royal household, the people, the descendants, the servants, the friends, the confidants, the counselors. Those are all part of David's house. God is saying, I have a house, and Moses is faithful in all of my house. So Moses is the most faithful servant in God's royal house. He's the mediator and the go-between between this world and the next world. But Moses, as great as he was, the author is saying, was not greater than Jesus. So the, the logic is fairly straightforward. The, the conclusion that the author wants us to get to is fairly straightforward. And even if you just use the clep notes, as it were, or the cheat sheet on your Bible, the heading above chapter 3 is, Jesus is greater than Moses. So that's easy enough to understand, but we want to look deeper into the, the lines of argumentation that the author uses to show how it is that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses is great, no doubt about that, just as the angels were great, no doubt about that. But Jesus is greater than Moses. Two lines of argumentation, and then we're going to see how we can make sense of this for our uh, lives today. First, the author says... Jesus has been counted more worthy of glory than Moses in the same way that the builder of the house has more glory than the house that he has built. So I think this is fairly understandable illustration that in the same way that a, that a builder of a house or an architect of a house has more glory than the house that he's built, in the same way Jesus has more glory than Moses. We, this makes a lot of sense to us, those who live here in and around Oak Park, but Frank Lloyd Wright, as he begins his career as an architect, his fame grows to the place where he bestows his fame upon the houses that he's built. So if you're driving through the neighborhoods and you pass a house, you might not know anything about it or look at it, or it might not even draw your attention, but if someone says, that's a Frank Lloyd Wright house, you go, oh, well, that's interesting. The house wasn't interesting until you knew that it had been built by Frank Lloyd Wright, right? So the builder of the house has more fame or honor or glory than the homes or the houses that are built. And in the household of God, the house of God, Jesus is the builder of the house, and therefore he has more glory than the house itself. But notice the implication of the author's logic. Not just that Jesus is the builder of the house, but that Moses, in some way, is the house that Jesus has built. What the builder is to the house, Jesus is to Moses. We're being told here that Jesus is not merely a member of the house, but is in fact the builder of the house. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. The author has made that point in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And Jesus, as the divine son, is the one through whom all things have been made and is bound up with God in his divine glory as the creator of all things. Jesus is more worthy of glory than Moses in the same way that God is more worthy of glory than the universe that he's created. 
The point of all of this is to put Jesus in the position of the creator over and above Moses in the position of the creation. Jesus is the creator. Moses is the creation. This isn't a critique of Moses per se. There's nothing inherently wrong with being a creature. But clearly, Jesus, as the builder of God's house, has more honor than Moses, who was a mere member of the house that God, that Jesus had built. So the author's logic is to turn away from Jesus, to hold on to Moses, to let go of the greater for the lesser. So that's the first line of thought. Jesus is the builder. Moses is just a part of what's been built. So the second line of thought, then, is in the next verses 5 and 6, basically is going to make the same point about Jesus' divine identity with respect to Moses. You guys tracking with me so far? We doing all right? Okay. The author has underscored in verse 2 the mutual faithfulness of Moses and Jesus. Right? Do you see that? In fact, he says here that we should consider Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Both Jesus and Moses are faithful in God's house. Now, one might think that the way that the author would show the superiority of Jesus over and against our, uh, the faithfulness of Jesus over and against the, the faithfulness of Moses would be to suggest that Jesus' faithfulness was, was more perfect or more full or to point out some of the episodes in Moses' life where he wasn't quite as faithful as Jesus was. But the author isn't here emphasizing the degree of faithfulness. Both Moses and Jesus are mutually faithful, the author says. They're both mutually faithful members of God's household, but there's a difference. Verses 5 and 6, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant of God's house. Jesus is faithful over God's house as the son of the house. In other words, it's not the degree of faithfulness, it's their respective positions of authority in relation to God's house. Moses is a member of the royal household, great. But Jesus as the son is the rightful heir and lord of the house. And as the lord of the household of God, Jesus inherently has more honor and authority than even the highest steward in God's household. And in verse 6, maybe this point is driven home because the author refers to us as the house of God. Moses is the building that Jesus has made. We are the building that Jesus has made. Moses, at the end of the day, is really just another one of us. He's just another servant in the home. And indeed, Moses, as a good servant, testified to the son. Did you catch that in verse 5? Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, which is a reference to Jesus and to the son. A good steward or a good servant of the household recognizes the primacy of the heir of the household and honors and points to the heir. And Moses points to Jesus prophetically as the son and the heir of the household. Like a good, a loyal servant, Moses himself would want you to follow the son. That's the implication 
of what the author is saying to his original audience. So again, the message to the original readers was, Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. Don't trade out the son for a servant. Okay, so the author's larger point in all this is that Jesus didn't come merely, here's, I think this is the key theological point, Jesus did not come merely as a better version of Moses. Just another faithful human mediator between God and man. Jesus came from above. He came to us, listen to this, he came to us from the realm that we are trying to get to. Jesus comes as the Son of God, the maker of all things, co-eternal with the Father, one substance with the Father. He's a mediator like Moses. He's functioning like a mediator, but he's, he's bridging the gap between heaven and earth as God from top to bottom, using the infinite resources of heaven, so to speak. Whereas Moses, as a mere man, could only build from bottom up using the finite resources of earth. Moses, as great as he was, could never fully get us to God because at the end of the day, he's just another member of the household like the rest of us. As the author of Hebrews asserts here, and then he's going to emphasize this in the chapters to come, Moses was never meant to serve as the permanent mediator between God and man. He was a stopgap. He was appointed by God to testify to the Son who is the perfect mediator and bridge between God and man. Okay, now let's see if we can figure out what this might mean for us today. Not many of us, I suppose, are tempted to trade out Jesus for Moses. But we are tempted, I think, all of us, to look to other lesser creatures and servants to help us access the higher reality that all of us naturally and innately are seeking after. What the author's critique of Moses tells us is that the gap between the earthly and the heavenly, between the mundane world around us and the transcendent reality that all of us want to live into, cannot be bridged by any resources that we mere creatures possess here on our side of the gap. So if you imagine a great gap between the earthly and the finite, and between the infinite and the heavenly. And here's this gap between. And we're trying to figure out how to, to bridge the gap, like the ancient people in Genesis 11. How do we ascend to heaven? How do we span the distance? What the author's critique of Moses tells us is that there are no resources that exist on our side of the gap that we can use to access or to build upon or to create a tower of that will get us to the heavenly. If what you are depending upon to lead you to something to some higher transcendent if what you are depending upon to lead you to some higher transcendent reality is something from this world it's really only just a bigger version of yourself No matter how exalted or great the things of this world are they are only as good as the things of this world we cannot rise above our finitude by building a tower out of the finite things of this world. All earthly things, independent of God, are marked by futility. 
At the end of the day, if you are using the things of earth to lift you above the earth, you will never get free of the earth. So what are you depending upon to give your life a sense of deeper purpose and meaning? And here's where I want to press in on those of my friends this morning that have not yet given their life to Christ. Of course, the Christian answer to this question is Jesus. He's the mediator that transcends heaven and earth. He's the one that stands on both sides of the gap, that we ascend as a bridge or a ladder into the great transcendent realities of God. But if, if it's not Jesus, what is it for you that you are depending upon to give your life a sense of meaning and a higher purpose? What sort of tower are you building or climbing that you hope will lift you above the futility of life as we experience it into the heavens. I think even as Christians, we can somehow slip in this a little bit too, where we know the right answer here, but we, we miss it a little bit and we slide into other things to, to kind of give us this sense of transcendence. I think one of the main things that we can look to in our day and age is family. We know our lives should be about something bigger than ourselves, and so... We don't make our lives just about ourselves. We think about our family or our family legacy or, or having the extended family and, and, and it growing on beyond us, on into the future. But there's a futility to this. It's kind of come home to me as I've got to that place in my life now where my grandparents have died. And it's occurred to me as I was preparing this sermon that I do not know the first name of my great-great-grandma. How many of you know the first name of your great-great-grandma? Probably not many of us do. How many of you know the first name of your great-great-great-grandfather? Probably none of us could recall it. There's an author, Wendell Berry, and uh, he's a fantastic author. He's kind of a nostalgic author, so if you like to read a book and then cry at the end of it, this would be a great author for you. If you don't like that, then you might want to pass on to other authors. But he wrote a, a book called A Place on Earth, and it's, it's, a, it's a poignant story about a man who's kind of coming to grips with mortality and the finitude of life, and he's really just kind of wrestling through this. And he gets to, the, uh, to, to where his mother has died. He himself is older in his age, and his, his uh, aged mother has died. And so he's the last of his siblings, and so he's tasked with the responsibility of, of, of cleaning out her stuff. Some of you have been in that situation. And this is how uh, Barry describes uh, this, this man's uh, experience. He remembers the heavy day after her death that he spent burning the leftover odds and ends of her life that she had carefully preserved in the closets and the bureau drawers. Postcards, letters from people whose names he had forgot and hastened to forget again. Photographs of people dead before he was born whose names he never knew. Though he wanted none of it, though he lightened himself by getting rid of it, there was an awesome finality in the burning of those things dear to her for reasons that would never be known again in the world. 
There is, there is ultimately a futility to trying to live on through one's family. It's not just that you've forgotten your great-great-grandmother's name, but it's that you too will be forgotten, that your great-great-great-grandchildren will have no idea who you are. And if you're trying to find ultimate meaning and grounding yourself in the higher transcendent reality of your family, at the end of the day, they're just as mortal as you are. And they will go the way of all flesh just as you. There can be no anchoring yourself or climbing the ladder to heaven on the ladder of your family. Or how about achievement? I think this is one of the things that civilizations try to, 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 they erect monuments to themselves. We try to erect monuments to ourselves in our own limited way. I think about uh, recently Stonehenge was in the news. And uh, they had discovered where the rocks had, this was the big, it, I, the headline was the, the mystery of Stonehenge solved. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I mean, I've been waiting, what, 3,000 years for this or however long this, is, this has been around. And then you go there and really all they figured out is where the rocks came from. They came from a quarry about 100 miles to the north. But we still don't know what they were for, what they were doing, why they were there, who put them there. We just don't know anything about it. And here's this monument that has lasted for all this time, but what it was erected for and what it was about, it's, it's been forgotten. And the ancient world is just strewn with monuments that, that no one cares about anymore, that no one pays attention to, that no one even knows what they mean anymore. And all of our own little efforts to achieve things, to leave a mark, to, to, to do something that will be remembered. Maybe it'll be remembered for one generation, two, three but how many of us can even name 15 of the presidents of our country? These achievements that we pursue in the end cannot withstand the ravages of time. Some of us, I think, we try to find deeper meaning by giving ourselves to social causes. We, we, it's maybe not so much our family that becomes the, the thing or achievement, but, but we look upon the pain of the world. We recognize that, that it's not right that we should just have all of these things for ourselves. And so we want to give ourselves to, to, to alleviating the distress and discomfort of the world. And so we give ourselves to social causes. But, but at the end of the day, all that we can do to alleviate suffering and pain, it, if you've been engaged in social causes, I was just talking with a friend uh, whose whole career, their, his whole life is built around social causes, and he says, there's so much bitterness with the people that I work with, because all the effort that we do and all the difference that we make at the end doesn't really make that much difference. Jesus himself said, the poor you will always have with you. And his point wasn't to say, so stop caring about the poor. That wasn't his point at all. In fact, Jesus gave himself to the poor. He cared for the poor. But he said, don't be under the illusion that somehow you're going to have the capacity to eradicate all suffering and hardship in this world. You won't. Like, there is not a way. This is the natural end of all things. And we can build houses and we can build wells, but the people that we build houses for and that we build wells for are going to go the way of all flesh. And the houses that we build are going to go the way of all flesh. And the wells that we built are going to go the way of all flesh. There is nothing that we can give ourselves to that can tie us in to these transcendent realities that we seek apart from something that comes to us from outside the system. 
We need the ladder lowered from the top, not built from the bottom up. All these things, family, achievement, social justice, friends, all of these things are good and they're beautiful. They're beautiful servants and creatures of God, just like Moses was a faithful servant and creature of God. But we will not find ultimate meaning in the houses and towers built by human hands. We must look outside of ourselves, outside of this world, to the house that Jesus has built. Because he's the one that can build something that can withstand time and finitude and have meaning that goes out into eternity. Nothing that we build with our hands will be sufficient to overcome the inherent limitations of our finitude. But Jesus can make us, as the author says, he can make us part of God's royal household. The comfort that we take in this as we look past the Moseses, the limited Moseses that are, that are offered to us, to Jesus, the eternal builder and son, the, the comfort we take is that he builds us into his house. He can make us part of his house. Many of us, of course, deal with these realities by burying our head in the sand. We don't want to think about the question. So we distract ourselves with food and drink and pleasure and entertainment in order to hide from ourselves the futility of the life that we are leading. Because if we really just stared it in the face, it would overwhelm us if we didn't have some real meaningful hope or access to the life beyond. But distracting ourselves in the end is a poor plan. The author closes this passage with the first hint of the extended warning that's going to come over the next chapter, two chapters. What he says here at the end, he says, and we are his house if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And he's going to go on to talk about what happens if we don't hold fast, if we're not really Jesus' house, God's house that God has built. There's the house that Jesus builds, which lasts. And all who belong to Jesus are part of that house. And then there are the houses that we build that will be swept away in the end. The author is not presenting Jesus to his readers as a good idea, as just a better version of the angels, a better version of Moses. The author is presenting Jesus to his readers as the only option that all that this world offers, all the bricks that we could amass to build ourselves a tower, in the end cannot get us to where we want to go. Jesus is the wisdom, the word, the revelation, the priest of God who comes to lead us to God himself. Jesus is the only option. So to my friends here this morning who have been weighing whether or not Jesus is for them, I would encourage you to prayerfully, even as yet a believer, to prayerfully ask God to reveal himself to you. And if there's some other thing that you could lay hold of that is better than the Son of God for getting you to what life's meaning is all about, then go. Go and follow that. 
But I would say to you that there is no better thing than Jesus for getting us to God because Jesus is himself the Son of God. So pray that the Spirit of God would make that known to you. Don't sit on the fence forever. There will come a time when you have to make a choice. Don't lose the joy, the hope, the confidence that comes from laying hold of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the great high priest who has come and has stood between the frailty of our earthliness, our creatureliness, our humanity, and has lifted us up upon you to ascend into the heavens, the eternality of God, and what's more, have brought heaven down into this world to take all of the things that we hold dear, our families and our achievements and our causes, and have imbued them with your own greatness and your own glory so that these houses that we build, they don't have to just perish in the dust and the wind and the darkness, but that you work in us to, to produce lasting eternal fruit. God, help us to look to your son, to not look to vain hopes beyond uh, promising things that can't ultimately deliver. God, our, we want our hope to be in you, so I pray, Lord, that you would cause our hope to be in you in fresh ways this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.